Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Max Cates. He is the author of Serve, Lead, Succeed, and Seven Steps to Success for Sales Managers. Max, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. I appreciate it. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background? Well, I spent uh, 25 years in corporate communications, marketing, and um, after that, I had my first assignment in sales management, and I spent 15 years in sales management, there again with Fortune 500 companies. Okay. And the transition from general management and communications to sales, what was that like? When I first started in uh, corporate communications and marketing, and there again, it was with Fortune 500 companies, I developed the basics of a servant leader approach, and that is to put your employee as number one, to provide them support, training, empower them, give them some control on the job, seek their input, involve them in decision-making, Make them a part of the corporation. Make them a part of policy and procedure. So when I received my first sales management assignment, it was like landing in an alternate universe. It was a a universe populated by narcissists and autocrats. Uh, (laughs) So when I first started, it was uh, quite a shock to the system. I'll give you an example of how I started. The first man, the first meeting that I had with the sales group, I basically came in and I said, you know, everybody in this room knows more about sales than I do. So I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. In fact, what I want you to do is I want you to tell me how I can do my job to help you succeed. The only thing I ask is that you make a commitment that we are going to be the number one sales group in this corporation. So that was the beginning of it. And uh, I actively sought their input. We made decisions as a group. We worked together as a team. It was kind of like a reverse pyramid. The working salespeople at the top and me at the bottom. <laughs> As but, yes, yeah, exactly. So from there, we we registered some uh, some successes, and it was really a, an enriching environment from the standpoint that we were kind of learning with each other. It wasn't a boss to subordinate relationship. It was a relationship based on partnership, we were partners in success. There were boundaries, there were goals, but the whole idea was to work together to achieve these goals and to give them a sense of empowerment, of control. And, you know, Marcus, the key thing for me was to help everybody get this joy of selling. I mean, people get into the sales profession for a variety of reasons, but, you know, a couple of things you can, you can bet on is salespeople are competitive, but if you can channel that competition to be constructive competition, to be competition within where you're competing externally, but you're cooperating internally. So you channel that those competitive forces to the outside, but internally you're cooperating. Okay. So there is so, it's about regaining this sense, this joy of selling. There is so much to unpack in what you've just said. I always maintain that managers have five critical functions. The first is to hire the best people. And uh, recruitment and hiring are not an inconvenience. They are every manager and every leader's single most important responsibility and duty. And um, they should not be left uh, to the last minute. You don't prepare for an interview by reading a CV from your office to the room that you're interviewing it. 
you're just about to spend the price of a small mortgage to hire them. And the implications, particularly if you're selling big ticket items and enterprise sales, are that a bad hire can cost anywhere between 35 and 125 times the salary. And the hangover effect can be three, five, 10 years long. And the impact on morale can be massive. So hire the best people. If you hire the best people, 95% of your management problems go out of the window straight away. The second is get the best out of them. So every great manager's superpower is coaching. Training, mentoring, accountability are all critically important. But most managers who say they don't have time to coach haven't got time to coach because they're not bloody well coaching. If they were coaching, they would have lots of time because their people wouldn't be uh, setting fires for them to put out all the time. The third is to make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. The fourth is to help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. (laughs) And the fifth is to manage inclusively, which is really what you've just described. Um, It's a, a partnership of people with equal stature, respect, but different roles. And as a manager, your job is to help them achieve their potential. And I love the whole idea of the joy of selling. And the competitive side, I think, really needs to be channeled to raising everybody rather than trying to win internally. And so my next question is this, is what passes for great in sales fit for purpose? Well, I'll answer that first by addressing this whole sense of, uh, of purpose. We have to distinguish, and that's a very good question, by the way, because it, it addresses something that is a real problem in selling, and that is, what is your purpose? What is your reason for being? And I'll give you an example. There are I have this in the book. It's about a major pharmaceutical company. And what they determined was that their salespeople were lacking a sense of purpose, that their salespeople were so focused on writing scripts, on reaching sales goals, that they had forgotten why they're really there. And the reason why they were there was to provide pharmaceuticals to improve their customer's health. That is the bottom line. That's their sense of purpose. Their sense of being is to provide healthy customers, not just to go out and sell scripts. So your question is, how do you determine what's great in sales? Well, if you determine it as reaching a sales goal and making money and trying to motivate people extrinsically through money and awards and achieving goals, that's not it. You're already behind the game. The game is what is your purpose? What is your intrinsic motivation that makes you get up in the morning and get excited about your job. Well, the thing that gets you excited is probably not to wake up and say, you know, I think I'm going to make, you know, $2,000 today and reach a goal. Well, that's kind of an empty goal. And when you get to the end of the road, you look back and you, you see, yeah, okay, I made some money, but that really didn't make a whole lot of difference. But when you look at it intrinsically, What motivates you? Well, purpose is one of those big intrinsic motivators that gives you that joy of selling. Couldn't agree more. How do I put this politely? I've yet to meet a salesperson who is genuinely motivated by money, who isn't a total ass. They are often ghastly people. Now, I I understand that some people particularly if they've come from poverty, they think that money is the motivator. But the reality is all it becomes when you've reached a certain level becomes a benchmark of how much other people value what you are doing or selling. And 
it's the choices that it affords you that people are really interested in. So my experience is that where you look at job descriptions and job adverts, they typically are asking for self-starters who are closers, who've got great new business skills, who are money motivated, but they're forgetting that the reason we exist is the customer. And in the last 40 years, sales has taken a very bad wrong turn. I mean, it, it's never had a great reputation. Snake oil came out of the Wild West after all. So it's not like sales has become a pariah overnight. But the last 40 years, the culture, the drivers of the money behind the business will determine the behavior of the executive team that then filters down into management, it then filters down into the salespeople. And one of my big bugbears is companies claiming to be customer-centric. And at the end of every sales period, month or quarter, they put immense pressure on salespeople to put pressure on prospects and customers to buy stuff, whether they need it or not, at ludicrous discounts because they think that buying the business will get deals over the line. And it does some, but they were going to buy anyway. So you've just given away a load of margin. And you stripped the pipeline out for the next uh, quarter, and you created more pressure for your salespeople, which then creates a more toxic environment and increases mental stress. And I know that this is an area that you're especially passionate about. So talk to me about your observations in that. Well, first, as far as money being a motivator, the primary driving force of that is a narcissistic manager, a sales manager who is primarily focused on reaching a self-serving goal. And they assume that the way to get um, their salespeople motivated is by offering money, you know, rewards, awards, and that all these, you know, extrinsic awards that really don't mean a whole lot. That by itself creates a bit of that toxic environment because you've lost sight already of what this job is all about. You know, the sales job is about helping customers realize their goals. I'll give you just a real, this is a little story and it's kind of, it sounds kind of self-serving on my part, but. I was a salesperson for a while with um, AT&T. I had a little bitty customer. He was a carpet cleaner. Now, I had huge, I had huge accounts that were, you know, thousands, hundred thousands of dollar accounts. This guy was a little $5,000 account. And um, I lost him as an account because I, change jobs. But before I left, I called him and I said, hey, I just want you to know I appreciate your business. And he said, you know, what I really appreciate is this, that I, I know I'm, I'm the smallest account you had. But you know, you treated me like your biggest account. You gave me the time. You, you, you dug in and you did everything you could do to make my business better. And I know you didn't make a bit of money off me, but I got to tell you that you helped me see a lot of things to help improve my business. I apologize for that sounding self-serving, but oh, it, it's, a, it's one of those little things. It's a defining moment that was a huge part of my management strategy because that little guy, if I would have kept him for another 10 years, who knows? He might have become you know, my biggest account. And if not, at least I was serving him. So that's the kind of attitude that I've always tried to press with my people is serve every account. You know, look at how you can improve their business. They someday might be your biggest account. They someday might be your biggest referral. But take care of your customers. Serve them. Be honest with them. Don't try to sell them things that they don't need. And look at how you can improve their business. Now, 
it taking a step back, and I'll go all the way back, and I'm talking now about servant leadership, but I'm going to tie in these two thoughts. When Southwest Airlines first started, they had a CEO who was their founder. Uh, his name was Herb Kelleher. Yeah, yeah. He had, at the time, just an outrageous, an outrageous approach to business. In the 80s, you know, the approach to business was the customer is number one. Well, he came in and said, you know, we really don't believe that. We think our employees are number one. And he said, here's the strategy that we have that proved to be successful. You take care of your employees. You put them number one. You give them training. You give them support. You encourage them. You give them all the tools that they need to do their job. And they're going to take care of their customers. And then when their customers are taken care of, that takes care of our shareholders. That makes our shareholders happy. It's this cycle of that starts with taking care of your employees, ensuring that they take care of their customers, which will happen. And that takes care of the bottom line. Well, this is borne out by a study of the S&P 500 between 2010 and 2016, where highly engaged, companies with highly engaged employees had a 273% higher profit per employee than companies that had only mildly engaged or actively disengaged employees, 130% higher revenue per employee, 40% lower staff turnover, 20% higher daily productivity, and year-on-year -year compound share price growth of 316% higher than the rest of the S&P 500. So if anyone has any doubts about this, and uh, you're running a script that goes, uh, that demonstrates your stupidity, like we're not running a holiday camp, then bear in mind that if you genuinely believe that your job is to deliver great returns to your shareholders, treating human beings well, supporting them, training them, developing them, giving them opportunity, and supporting them, that is the most productive and most effective way of running a business. Profit and share price growth are byproducts of doing that well. That's absolutely right. And I'll add one additional study there was a study, and this was servant leadership specific, a study of publicly traded stock companies, and uh, it showed that those companies that had servant leadership as the dominant managerial factor had a 20% higher return on equity than other companies that did not have that as the dominant uh, management strategy. But uh, you're, you know, you're absolutely right, Marcus, about the importance of taking care of your people. But now here's one thing, and there again, now I'm, talk, uh, I'm talking about servant leadership specifically here. You know, it gets a little bit of a bad rap where people think, okay, you know, this is some nice guy strategy. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of coddling your employees and that kind of thing. Well, that couldn't be farther, farther from the truth. Servant leadership is a tough love strategy. And uh, here's kind of the essence of it. The essence is that when you're a servant leader, you're not there to provide comfort for your employees. You're there to make them surpass themselves. You have to make it somewhat of an uncomfortable environment from the standpoint of stretch objectives, of higher expectations. It's not enough to do your best. It's incumbent upon you to surpass yourself. And, um, you know, this whole idea of a nice guy strategy is more of a mutual accountability strategy that you give your, you take care of your people, 
you give them all those tools that they need, you encourage them, you support them. But at the end of the day, they're accountable for their results. You're giving them more freedom on the job to make decisions within certain boundaries. But at the end of the day, they're accountable. When you don't have this sense of accountability, here's what you get. When you have a missed objective, the salesperson will say, well, you know, I missed the objective and it's not my fault. It's the manager's fault. The manager gave me the tactics. He gave me the strategy. He gave me the goals. So if I miss it, not my fault. It's, it's his. Well, with servant leadership, you miss a goal and there's only one person who's responsible for that failure and that's you. It's also a sense of mutual accountability where the leader is accountable to his people as well. They're accountable for themselves, but the leader is accountable to his people. He has to answer to his people. Am I doing the job to make you successful? Am I giving you all the tools uh, to make you a better salesperson? What I'm perturbed by is the number of organizations that promote the narcissists, the bullies, the despots, the autocrats. And a book that I often cite is Snakes in Suits by Robert Bibiak and Bob Hare, which looks at psychopathy. And on death row, 3% of the inmates are clinically psychopathic. When they did their research, 5% of the US boardroom was clinically psychopathic. And I put this down to quarterly reporting to a large extent, because what it does is it encourages narcissists and psychopaths to get into those kind of roles where they can drive the machine or drive people as if they are a machine and treat human beings as a utility to be exploited. So I think what I'd be really interested in is the underpinning philosophy of great servant leadership and the uh, kind of people that one should hire into management and what makes them different from your average, largely underperforming manager. The SRC did a study in 2020 where they found that 94% of sales managers were not fit for purpose. Another part of the same study indicated that, I think it was the same study, indicated that 74% of managers thought they were coaching, whereas only 17%, of their salespeople believed they were receiving any coaching. So what are the qualities that really set someone up early in their career to become a great manager? Well, first, uh, we have to look at, I'll tell you, empathy is, is hugely important. And it's kind of interesting because empathy can be learned. Uh, Some people are born with more what they call mirror neurons than others. A mirror neuron basically predicts how empathetic you are. There are different kinds of empathy, but empathy is a huge part of strong leadership because empathy is just the opposite of narcissism. When you can understand people's point of view, you understand their motivation, you're able to not only understand them and to put yourself in their shoes, but you're able to act on that empathy. You're able to empathize with a person and then, for example, develop programs that will help this person become a better salesperson. So empathy is hugely important. And, you know, this is. Um, This is one of the most challenging things that I have seen in the sales management profession. The second thing is humility. It is a huge predictor of success in sales management. And humility being taking a selfless approach, forgetting about what's good for you and looking at what's good for your team, for your sales team. And being humble is really kind of antithetical to sales. Uh, At least that is the perception. But, you know, 
uh, Marcus, there was an interesting study that showed that 90% of top sales performers have high levels of humility. And that translates into sales management as well. That if you're humble, if you're able to step back, give the spotlight to other people, help other people succeed, that's going to be a huge predictor of your success. And that's the kind of person that you want to hire. Accountability is a third major component of sales predictors or sales management predictors of success. Can, can you and clarify a, what you mean by accountability as well, please, Max? Accountability is taking responsibility for your actions. And it's not blaming your salespeople. It's not blaming your boss. It's what I call no excuse management. That if you have a sales team, you are responsible for that team. If you fail, it's your failure. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this and you've seen it from managers who will miss an objective. And what's the first response? The first response is, oh, man, I, my salespeople suck. You know, I mean, my salespeople are terrible. Well, no. You're the terrible manager because, you know, you're blaming your people. You know, that's that's what um, that's what we call evaluative management versus participative management. You're setting back, you're providing a goal and you're just waiting for your salespeople to do the best they can to meet that goal. And if they don't meet it, well, it's you know, it's their fault. It's not my fault. So that's what I mean about accountability. And uh, with that, there's there's two factors. I mentioned this earlier. There's the accountability that your people have for themselves, and you have to engender that they have to be accountable for their results. But it's also your accountability, and that is you're accountable to your people. So it's kind of a reverse accountability. So that essentially, that's what I mean. It's uh, no excuse management. It's, you know, you don't point the finger. You don't, you know, you don't point blame at others. You take responsibility for your actions. It takes a big ego to do that. It takes a real big e ego to be humble and accountable. So luckily, those things can be learned. That's really interesting because um, I, I would typically say that the ego is frequently the enemy, and that's clearly the negative side of it. But I, I think an other, another element of uh, humility and accountability is a an all-consuming desire to learn and to improve, because you cannot possibly be accountable and humble without recognizing that when you screw up, when things don't work out, you have a lesson to learn. And I think it's really important also that great leaders allow their people to fail, but they don't let the business to fail. And they recognize that it's the hiding of failure that is the punishable crime, not the failing in the role. And you hit on a real key topic, Marcus, and that is this whole idea of continuous improvement, continuous learning. and. You know, here's one thing that you find in a servant leader organization is, and this goes back to humility, is that the leader learns from his people and vice versa. It's a continuous learning process. And even more important than that is that salespeople should be learning from their teammates. You learn from your peers, you learn from your boss, you learn from your subordinates. And that's this whole idea of being humble, of saying, man, I don't know nearly as much as I need to know. I need to always keep my mind open to new concepts. I need to share information. I need to, you know, another key part of humility is admitting mistakes. I made a mistake and I learned from it. So you learn from your mistakes. But 
that is a real key thing in a, in a servant-led environment is this whole concept of continuous learning and learning from all sources and humbling yourself to admit, especially the manager, humbling yourself to admit that, hey, I don't have all the answers, but as a team, we'll get answers. You know, you, you help me learn from this situation. So that's a very humble approach to it, but it's so enriching and innovating. Okay, so let, let's take the conversation a little bit deeper in terms of management and leadership, because we've touched on recruitment. And I'm, I know that in the seven qualities you're talking about with, uh, around servant leadership, the first one you talk about is hiring well. So what, what are the great predictors of hiring a great salesperson who will work out? Well, first of all, you know, they have to, uh, they have to match your, your chemistry, your group, your team chemistry. But here are a couple of things that first I'm going to, you know, a while ago I mentioned that top salespeople, 90% of top performers are humble. They are humble people. That same study showed that 82% of top salespeople are high in empathy. They understand, they seek to understand their customers. You know, another one is this, and this kind of fascinated me. This was from a study by uh, Steve Martin, that the top performers were actually low in gregariousness. You know, what all of these things kind of lead to is what I call, what I look for are ambiverts. They're not extroverts, they're not introverts, but they're ambiverts. And those are people who can go in, they're good listeners, they don't overtalk, you know, they listen, they take notes, they're not focused only on what they're going to be saying next, but they actually listen. They're extroverted to a sense of creating engagement with the, with the customer, but they're not so extroverted that they're trying to make best friends with the customer. And best friends never, you know, that, uh, that being a goal, that never works out because that gets in the way, actually. So you have to, you know, you have to reach this happy medium between introversion and extroversion. They're assertive. They're assertive in a very polite way that they're able to ask for the sale in a way that makes the customer feel comfortable. Those are some of the uh, qualities of top salespeople. And, uh, you know, another one that I really find particularly fascinating is the ability to engage customers with a kind of self-awareness. Ambiverts and good salespeople are highly self-aware. They know when they're pushing too hard. They know when they're not pushing hard enough. They know how to sell a concept without alienating the customer. They can, they can maintain that customer alignment. So this whole idea of being self-aware and realizing how far to push and when not to and when to is a real key ingredient of, sales, uh, of top salespeople. Is that what you refer to as the sixth dimension in the book? Well, the other one is, and this is a key thing, is teamwork. And that is, that's the next dimension, which is, ties in directly with what you just mentioned. And that is being, bringing to the fore the ability to work with peers. And coincidentally, when you hire somebody who has the ability of selflessness, who can work effectively in a team environment, who can provide support, share ideas with their peers, who can 
Take criticism in a positive way, getting back to your learning comment, who can learn from peers. That's all a critical part of teamwork. Coincidentally, the more team-oriented you can be, the better you are in dealing with customers. Because a customer relationship is the prototypical team environment. You're working with your customer to improve his business, to improve his prospects. Well, th- th- this is really interesting because I-, I have a fundamental belief that organizations and managers who do not adapt to hiring salespeople who are very collaborative, I firmly believe that your success in the future will be determined by your ability to collaborate. And you need to be able to collaborate with your teammates, but you also need to be able to collaborate internally within your own organization, because often that's where you find the most resistance. And you need to be able to drive discretionary effort from people who do not necessarily benefit directly from you winning a sale. You need to collaborate with your partners, because increasingly, in 2017, 75% of all physical products were sold through partners globally across all 26 vertical markets. And that's only increasing. And COVID has accelerated that. And you absolutely have to collaborate with your customer, not only to get the sale over the line, but to stay relevant because you need to be a deep listener. You need to always be asking, what are the jobs they're trying to get done? What progress are they able to make? What are their sticking points? What are their struggling moments? What is coming next down the pipe? And how can we help them to achieve that, even if it's not through us? And I I look at the best salespeople I've ever known, and they have all of these qualities. They're very high on empathy. They never make an excuse. They always take ownership. They are fantastic at selling with partnering skills. They are humble. It's always about making the customer the hero. They never take the credit. And again, if I look at the qualities that in historically have made a great salesperson who then gets tapped on the shoulder to become a manager, they're all the wrong ones. Whereas the best managers, the best sales leaders that I know have those skills or those traits And their transition into sales management is much smoother and they end up bringing people with them instead of creating an adversarial sales culture where it's us against the customer. I I don't, clearly from your nodding, that's been your experience as well. But it, it strikes me as mind boggling that when the evidence is out there and the results are out there, of people who behave like that, performing right at the top of the leaderboard, whereas other people may perform like that in brief sprints, but they generally have very high turnover. Their customer churn rates are extremely high. Um, Customer complaints and dissatisfaction levels are high. So this then raises the next question, because I'm, I'm doing some research into this at the moment. I'd be really curious about your take. Does the traditional sales compensation model drive the wrong and unintended negative behavior within the sales organization? You know, that's a real good question. And my my basic answer to that is yes. There are some more enlightened commission plans that are based on customer retention that are based on long-term sales. But, you know, the basic, and I'm, I'm answering this very simplistically, so the basic commission plan drives daily activity. It drives product sales. It drives, basically, it drives selling a product, period. It's transactional. That's right, yeah. But what it doesn't drive is customer retention. What it doesn't necessarily drive is long-term sales. Because, you know, you're going to find your best salespeople, they'll give up a short-term sale 
for a long-term benefit. Because if they see that a particular product, uh, you know, benefit, if a product doesn't benefit a customer the way that it should for the customer's long-term benefit, they won't take it. They'll let it go. But what they gain is retention and what they gain is the trust factor that's going to lead them to bigger sales in the long term. This then feeds the argument that the traditional compensation model that rewards heavily new business, new logo wins is harmful in the long run. And my view, and again, I would love feedback from the audience, is that the new win should get a small compensation. When you get full utilization, full adoption of the product, then you should get another payout. When the customer reports back that they achieved the outcome that they intended from making that investment, there, is a, there are fireworks, there's champagne, and a great big payout to everybody who is involved in helping the customer be successful. And you get paid again when there is repeat business, cross-sell, renewals. And those are the things that we should be focusing our salespeople on rather than ludicrous um, behavioral targets on a day-to-day basis, just trying to drive activity, which is just brute force selling and Mm -hmm. brute force marketing. And when, when you consider the waste, it is obscene. What I found from my observations is that your average salesperson spends 80% of their time chasing people they should have closed or disqualified on the last call. They spend far too much time speaking to non-prospects because they have a weak or empty pipeline because they're being driven by these activity goals. So they never really get to fill their pipeline effectively with quality and sufficient volume volume to ensure that they consistently hit their quota. And as a result, they're always playing a game of catch up, which means that they're far more likely to race to the bottom on price early. And um, it's created this environment where sales teams think it's about the fireside sale at the end of the quarter to get the deals over in the last minute. And you have 33 day months so that you can fiddle the accounting just doesn't serve the customer. And Mm -hmm. doing that, you create a horrific environment for the salespeople. Yeah, so well put, so well put. The whole question in compensation plans, and I tell you, in day-to-day sales operation, the key question is, where's the customer? How is the customer benefiting from what you're doing? You know, we all know where the product is and we know what you're trying to do to advance your bottom line, but where's the customer? In this latest book, I have a chapter called Customer Empowerment, and that is getting your customer involved. Yes. You know, in a sales meeting, where is your customer? Oh, Why isn't your customer sitting in on your sales meetings? In product development, where's your customer? Is your customer telling you what he wants, when he wants it, how he wants it? You know, is he providing you with an active voice in your product development, in your sales procedures? Where's the customer? You know, are you are you implementing or are you going in and doing things that are alienating the customer that you don't even know about? You know, why isn't your customer speaking to you? Why don't you have an 800 line where your customers are, can call in complaints? They can call in product ideas. They can give you input. They can help you develop sales plans, product plans, product applications. I mean, product applications are everything. So there again, where's your customer? Well, and I don't know if you've ever come across this company. They operate in the U.S. health sector. They're a company called Authentics, and their website is beauthentic, with an X at the end, cx.com. And they operate a really smart bit of 
AI that listens to the unvarnished, unfiltered conversations salespeople and customers are having or support people are having with customers. And they've reduced call center, uh, help desk calls by 40%, which has freed up 40% more selling capability. They are learning from the customer exactly what works and what doesn't work. So they're getting great stories. They're able to give that information to product development. Increasingly, what I'm seeing is uh, the smartest companies have customers in sales meetings. They have them on their board, advising them, sitting in. They spend time out with the customer, speaking to them, holding themselves to account so that when they make a sale, part of their compensation plan is that there is regular accountability meetings with the customer where both sides hold each other to account and where you develop, co-develop product in line with what the customer needs. Your customers, and and again, this is a really interesting bit of research that came from Salesforce in December 2020, where they identified that companies that had the courage to go and speak to unhappy customers ended up having a six times faster product development cycle than their competitors. So don't just speak to your raving fans. Go and speak to people who are pissed off with you. Find out why and own the reason why. My friend Amy Woodall says, uh, your customers are sometimes wrong, but when they are, it's normally your fault. Mm-hmm. And it's the, a mismatch of expectation management. It's ambiguity. It's failure to listen. And in LinkedIn's state of sales report that came out in 2020, the number one requirement that customers were asking for was salespeople who listen deeply. That's absolutely right. Yeah, the best way to learn from customers is to find the customers who are disenchanted with your product or with your process. That's just an amazingly rich learning experience. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really incumbent on the sales force to open up those avenues of uh, communications with the customers. And, uh, you know, even, you know, I've known some who've awarded, who's had a customer hall of fame, you know, at the end of the year, they'll have an awards banquet and they'll have, okay, here's our customer of the year award goes to such and such and a customer hall of fame. I mean, it just brings your customer into the process. And what that does is over the long haul, that creates trust. And what is the most important thing in the sales uh, process? That's trust. Max, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly. I would love to have you back because there's so much more for us to talk about if you're willing to do that. Oh, I'd be happy to. Really do appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you so much. Tell me this, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think the biggest thing that I wrestle with on a day-to-day basis is seeing a lack of change in sales management. We're seeing, you know, you see some incremental progress every once in a while, but, you know, the problem is this, that the dynamics of sales creates bad managers. I mean, you know, people are, you know, it's just human nature. You know, you're you're exposed to all this day-to-day pressure and you really become a person that you're not. You know, you become a person who's developed some of these narcissistic tendencies, you know, where you want to push, you want to push your people to achieve goals. But the thing that just continuously bothers me is the slow pace of change in the industry. And the fact that when you look at sales sales management as a profession, and you look at leadership in other industries, there's a huge disconnect, huge disconnect. There still is. And despite the fact that every once in a while, you know, you'll see sessions, uh, you know, you'll see training sessions on empathy and the soft skills, Who's really practicing it? I'm not seeing a lot of that. Well, I I read an 11-year-old study by Gallup over the weekend where it said that experience 
has zero impact in terms of predictive hiring on performance. And the only value it brings is a slightly higher ramp up, a quicker ramp up period. OMG, who've done well over 3 million assessments of salespeople, their data science has, again, reinforced that experience is of zero value when you're hiring. You hire for the qualities you cannot train. And what fascinates me is that, by and large, I think our species is dumb as a box of bricks. We do not learn. What we do is we keep repeating the same old shit day in, day out. And then we blame the wrong uh, end of the problem. We blame the salespeople when it's the managers. And we blame the managers when it's the leadership. And more often than not, it's driven by really appalling culture that is fueled by the financial model. And who on God's earth came up with the idea that an accountant was the person who should be running a business that is made up of people and where people sit on the balance sheet as a cost instead of an investment. Mm -hmm. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah, that is absolutely right on target. Um, And I see so much of that in sales management um, that the focus is more, as we had said earlier, on money as opposed to this concept that you focus on excellence and the money follows, but focus on excellence, you know, focus on your people, focus on developing them and everything else, you know, everything else comes in place after that. When I hire people for my sales teams and I've got six that I'm building at the moment, very early in the recruitment process, I ask the question, what is it that you want career in sales to give you in life? And the answers to that tend to be the uh, initially the answer they think I want uh, to hear. So then we push back and we challenge it so that we get to really understand why they're doing it, for whom, what are the experiences they want to have in life? What are the choices they want to be able to make? What difference do they want to make? Because I want to hire people who are high on trust less interested in their competence at this stage because I can train that. And the other thing that I do very early on in their tenure is pretty much first day. Okay, so what's the next job? What are you trying to attain in terms of career progression? Why? What help do you need? And then we set them down that path so that they've got a 12 to 24-month runway learning how to become a manager or learning how to sell into enterprise or learning how to move into channel sales, whatever it happens to be, we make sure that part of their development is being equipped for the next stage in their career. And that means that we're always ahead of the plan because we've already got people who can succeed if someone leaves and they're already familiar with the culture They've already got a network and that will speed things up. But it it baffles me why managers do so little of the hard work and they spend so much of their time being spreadsheet jockeys and um, wasting their salespeople's time producing meaningless reports for the audit function. You know, we find that the power of KPI, you know, uh, it's just overwhelming. People, sales managers are very likely to get numbers focused as opposed to people focused. That's a sign of a lazy manager. And, you know, what happens is this. You focus on numbers and then you develop rules. And rules that apply to everyone, that's like the wrecking ball of the lazy manager. Because what it does it's a lot easier to set up a rule than to go in and look at your individual salespeople and develop them individually and according to their personality and their skill set. So it's, it's a lot easier to say, well, you know, we're, we're running, uh, running real low on closes per day. So I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell everybody in this group, you have got to have three closes a day, and that's the rule. 
Well, yeah, that's pretty easy to say. But what's go- is it going to work? Well, it'll work, but it's going to be counterproductive. What's the key to it? Well, forget the rule. Go in and look at every salesperson. Use your numbers to look at their skill sets. Use your numbers to determine what makes this particular salesperson effective. It's a lot more, it's a lot more work to do, but what you get is you get a lot better, higher performance, and you get long-term performance. Well, I think there's another element to this, which comes back to the coaching conversation, which is you need to do ride-alongs because you coach what you see. And part of the problem here is far, far too few managers have a clue how to coach. Virtually none of them nowadays do ride-alongs. And your job is not to be the hero. So you don't polish your armor up and say, yeah, come on, Max, uh, see how a real man does it. Your job is to observe and to let them fail in front of the customer if necessary, as long as they're not doing the brand uh, any real damage. And then observe and then ask questions so that they can become more aware of their own performance and what the triggers are, what the catalysts are that cause them to fail in role. We're in the third generation of managers who doesn't know how to prospect and don't know how to coach prospecting. So then they have another problem, which is that you prospect for choice. And the right time to be prospecting is not at the end of the month to try and close some deals. It was 12 weeks ago when you should have been filling your sales pipeline up when you have a 12-week sales cycle. And in fact, it should have probably started 16 to 24 weeks ago so that you are nurturing the pipeline that was going to be moving into the position where they would be ready to buy. But very few managers think like that. They're all short-term and they're focused on uh, activity, not meaningful action. You are so right, so right. Two things. Uh, First, you know, what we find some people are doing instead of coaching, they're indoctrinating. And what they're doing is they're indoctrinating people to do the sales job the way that they did it. That doesn't work. You know, you can't expect your people to be as good as you are. You can't expect your people to operate the way that you did. Everyone has their own skill set and their own proclivities, and you have to take that into account in coaching. You're absolutely right about asking the questions, you know, getting them to think about it instead of saying, here's how you need to do it. Second is timing. Timing is a key component of coaching, and that is people learn when the time is right. You know, you don't tell them when the best time for them to learn is. If you're doing ride-alongs, you know, you have to, you know, if, if, uh, if a sales rep just flamed out with a customer, that's not the time that he's going to learn something. You've got to pick the right time for him to learn, not the time that you want to coach. This is really interesting, and it is kind of a plug, but I've just taken on the CRO role for a brilliant little company called Mobile Practice. And what they deliver is an app that sits on the phone and you can coach to a moment in the sale. And the salesperson gets given clear instructions for the intervention in terms of this is the moment, these are the outcomes that we want you to work towards. And uh, what we'd like you to do is record yourself delivering that talk track or that moment. And then they get to practice, self-assess whilst they get it right and they're comfortable. And they do it in the safety and at a time that's convenient to them on their own. Then they upload it. And then it creates a 10-minute coaching opportunity for the manager or the coach or the trainer to then go back and give feedback so that maybe they can do it again. Or if it's a brilliant piece, then to capture that, it becomes part of the playbook part of the onboarding process, and all of their peers can learn from it. Now, 70% of learning happens in the field, not in the classroom. And get this statistic, Max, because this is enough to cause grown men to cry. Only three, sorry, let me rephrase that. The gold standard for online training 
completion is 3%. Now, you've got all these companies throwing vast amounts of money into training in the classroom, training online. People do not even get to the end of the training program. And then what they're focused on is retention. And that's a mistake. The problem with most training is if it's focused on what they remember, as opposed to how they apply it in the real world, in their job, in a way that is meaningful to them, that improves their performance, then that money, that time, that effort is wasted. Very well put. Yeah, I really like this concept of outcomes-based training. you're You're not training the tactic. You're not training, you know, a particular practice, but you're focusing on what are the outcomes that we want from this training. Well, no one buys the product. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know what, I really want a PBX system or a router. They're buying, they're renting the outcome. And training should be no different. And the problem is that unless you do outcome-based selling, I think you're definitely going to miss the mark. And you will end up with massive churn and uh, unhappy customers. Look, Max, we've come to time, sadly. One final question then. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back and you can advise the idiot Max, age 23. What would you whisper in his ear that you know he would have probably ignored? It would have (laughs) served him well throughout life. Very good question. Um, I think the biggest advice would be just don't get carried away with your ego. It's interesting because one thing that I always talk about is intoxication by power. You know, Mm. you get a little bit of power and you get intoxicated. You know, your ego gets oversized and you forget who you are and why you're there. That would be my key advice is to stay humble, to remember who you are, to not get intoxicated by whatever level of power you have. You know, it's interesting because there was a, um, there was a neurologist who did a study of CEOs, and he found that many of those people who have reached certain levels in an organization are intoxicated by power and their behavior is the same as behavior exhibited from brain damaged people. <laughs> They're, you know, they are impatient, they are critical, they are prone to confrontation, they just become lesser people by what power they have been granted. So humility, that's, that's a key thing. Just if I, I would just tell myself to be humble. Well, um, if you haven't read it, then I would strongly recommend Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy. In fact, it's the first in a uh, series of three very great books. And also pay attention to what Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics have written. Ryan Holiday has made Stoicism quite accessible because I think a a lot of Stoicism, if you read it in the raw, is quite difficult. But definitely pay attention to the Stoics. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to? I'll tell you, uh, there are some of my favorite authors. My top author is John Maxwell. Very big on servant leadership and One of his key concepts is uh, people who have a reconciling spirit. That is, people who can go in and have differences of opinion, but are able to reconcile. Another key author is Ken Blanchard. He uh, authored a book called Lead Like Jesus, who is very much in in line with servant leadership as well. These authors uh, are really kind of getting towards the things that we have been talking about. I'll tell you another one that I like, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's Sean Acker, A-C-H-O-R. He writes a lot on um, on happiness and that, you know, you don't attain happiness by chasing it. You attain happiness 
through gratefulness, through gratitude. You know, you're grateful for what you have. And then that, you know, leads to happiness. Steve Martin is a researcher and uh, just a, he provides some real, real insights into sales management and into top sellers. So those are a few. Excellent. Thank you so much, Max. Um, How can people get hold of you? My email is, uh, I'll just give you my email address. It's katesmax at yahoo.com. Amazon, go to Amazon Books, just type in my name, Max Cates, and it'll pull up my books. And And that's C-A-T-E-S. Yes. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Max Cates, thank you. Well, thank you, Marcus. I really do appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. So this is Marcus Happy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, helpful, then please like, comment, share, and do subscribe to the podcast. And if you feel the urge and you're feeling honest, then please leave an honest review, one star, three stars, five stars, really not fussed, on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, if you're the owner or the CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million revenue range, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real, sustainable, profitable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive employees throughout your entire revenue operation and customers who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. That's marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. And some of you will be familiar with Sales of Force for Good. We're a global community growing very rapidly, committed to the mission of raising the bar within the selling profession and to make sales an aspirational career choice. And we're tackling some of the hardest questions there are in sales. We're capturing all those lessons and making them freely available to anyone who's in the community forever. So we're tackling questions like, what needs to change in executive culture for any positive change in sales to sustain? What needs to change in sales compensation so the customer is put at the heart of everything a business does? What needs to change in terms of how we recruit salespeople so that we create salespeople who deliver buyer safety? These things and many more. If you're interested in that, check out the hashtags SAFFG, hashtag ProCustomer, and hashtag BuyerSafety. We have videos, we've got audios, we've got recordings, we've got groups. Uh, Love to have you on board. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.